Good morning, church. I hope you are well by God's grace today. I hope you're encouraged to gather with the body of Christ. Um, as I say often, we, we come knowing we need grace, don't we? Uh, we do not come as a people that have it all together. We come as a rather broken group of misfits who have been saved by grace, right? And then we have a great God and we are drawn to him around his word and he ministers to us. And so we need the body of Christ. Uh, so it's good to gather. If you have a copy of God's word, would you turn to Psalm 119? That's where we're going to be again this morning, beginning in verse 121. You know, authenticity matters. Something being authentic is significant. You know, like an, like an authentic pair of sneakers versus a non-authentic pair, you know, um, they, they might look cool, but they would, they're going to fall apart, right? Um, more than likely, they're not going to last. Um, when I was in college, I got to spend a whole summer in the Philippines doing an internship. Uh, anybody in here a Filipino background? Anybody? Couple people, all right, praise God, that's great. Um, I love all things Filipino except Balut. Um, and if you know what that is, great, if not, you're better off. Um, so in the, in the Philippines, I was in, in Metro Manila for three months, and uh, there's a, a mall there called Green Hills Mall. It's somewhat notorious, it's a massive mall, but it's known for a few things, pearls, uh, which is good. Um, you just gotta make sure they're authentic and not plastic beads on a string. And the other thing it's known for is bootlegged everything. Um, literally everything, um, movies, jewelry, watches, purses, shoes, bags. So you can go, go in there and get real Louis Vuitton for $5. You know, you can get real Jordans for $10, except the Jordans I saw, I think he was holding a spear in his hand. Um, so everything in there is knockoff and everybody knows it. So you want something that looks authentic, kind of, sort of? Green Hills Mall is the place to go. But you know, really, we all would know in, in, the, scope, in the scheme of life, like that's not the real deal. So you might not mind, you might be a person with no shame, and so, hey, you're going to carry that knockoff something, and everybody thinks it's legitimate. And really, when it comes to things like purses and shoes, nobody cares. But this morning... The Word of God is going to show us what authentic faith looks like. He's going to show us two marks of an authentic follower of Jesus. And it's really important we get this right. That we don't have the option of being unauthentic. You can't be a knockoff Christian. There is no such thing. You can't, you can't be a fake Christian. Um, so we are going to get into the scriptures and see what the psalmist calls a servant of God. That's the consistent title for himself in these eight verses. Three times he calls himself a servant of God or just a servant. And I find that to be really fascinating because today the common word is I'm a Christian and that's a good word. But then we have other words like, oh yeah, I'm a person of faith. I'm a religious person. I'm a, I go to church. I found God. I found religion. We have all these ways that we talk about our Christianity, but we don't often use words like, I'm a servant. I'm a servant of God. Because there's something distinguishing about that title, isn't it? It, it takes it to another level. It's kind of like, well, it's, it's easy to use certain popular Christian words. 
that are accepted in society. And the range of meeting is everything from authentic to unauthentic. But there's something remarkable about this word that we are a servant, a servant, a servant. And even before we dive into our text this morning, we have got to be so clear that that what he's dealing with here are people who know they are redeemed. The psalmist is not going to give us two ways to make your life better. He's not going to give us 40 days to improve your life. He's going to give you two marks of a true child of God. So very quickly, it must be understood that if you're not a child of God, these don't make any sense. If, if you've heard the phrase, you get the cart before the horse. You know, that's, that's what a lot of people do with Christianity. Let me, let me fix my life and add God to it. You don't fix your life. God fixes your life, right? He redeems you and then you follow him. But so often what we want is, okay, I'll be a better person. I'll go to church more. I'll give more money. I'll serve harder. And then maybe God will accept me. But that's not the message of the scriptures. The message of the, the, the scriptures is simply that we recognize that we're broken, like I just mentioned. We're broken. We're sinners. We don't have it all together. None of us do. And we come to a God who is abundant in redeeming grace, and we say, God, I need you. I desperately need you. I can't do it on my own. And some of you are, are on what I call the hamster wheel of life, and you're not stopping. And that wheel's still spinning, and you're still thinking, if I just do more better... God will accept me. But that's not what we find in scripture. The message of scripture is you can't do more better. You need a savior who died in your place. And so we are sinners who understand that we deserve the wrath of God, even as we sang about this morning, but we come to God by faith and repentance, believing in Jesus alone. That is the audience of this text. Those who understand they are redeemed by God's grace, and now they live for God by his grace. And so that is so important before we even begin to look at the scriptures this morning. Because if you aren't clear on those pieces of the puzzle, you're going to try to live the Christian life when you're not even starting the race. You're not even born again. You've never come to God saying, I need you. I don't need you to just fix my my earthly problems. I need you to save my soul. I need you to forgive me because I've run from you my entire life. I need grace to save me. And if, if you're not there, then living as a Christian won't ever work. And, and the psalmist, the one writing sacred scripture, he's clearly there. He's not confused on whether or not he is earning God's grace or whether he's been given God's grace. He knows full well that grace is the unmerited favor of God. But he also knows well that there is blessing promised to those who walk in blamelessness. Psalm 119.1, blessed is the man whose way is blameless. So he understands the difference between my position before God and my life lived for the glory of God. And this morning, if we don't grab a hold of that and hold on to that, even throughout this text, you'll come away confused and frustrated and thinking, okay, I just got to run on my hamster wheel faster to get God to accept me. But that's not the point. So with all of that being said, let's read Psalm 119, 121 to 128. I have done what is just and right. 
Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love or your mercy and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you meet with us now? And would your words speak to us in profound and clear and simple ways as we open it and as we dive into it, you minister to us. We need you, Lord. We really need you. So would you care for us in this time? And in Christ's name, amen. This morning, I want to draw out the two marks of a true servant. The, true, the, the two marks of a true servant run to grace and run from sin. Run to grace and run from sin. We're going to begin with running from sin. This is the first mark of a true servant, a true child of God. And for this morning, I want, I'm going to use the, the, the words of scripture. So we're going to talk about Christians as servants, okay? So when I say the word servant, think follower of Jesus. Think Christian, because that's what the text is pointing us to this morning. So the first mark of a true servant is someone who runs from sin. Sin is a very seldom discussed word today. Would you agree? As a society, we don't do sin in the sense that, well, we do a lot of sin. We just don't talk about it, right? We use words like mistake, even in, even in so-called Christian writing and music, just mistakes. We just make, you know, occasionally make mistakes. We call things disorders because we don't want to acknowledge that we're sinners, right? And so you can get, dis- you can get diagnosed with a, disor- a disorder for just about everything God calls sin, because it's easier to talk about disease than talk about Jesus and your need for a savior, right? So when we talk about sin, we're talking about anything you say, think, or do that disobeys God's law. Anything you say, think, or do that disobeys God's law. And if you really think about that, that means you've sinned already today. Anything you say, think, or do that disregards God's word, okay? So just to make sure we're all clear, that includes all of us. So we're talking about running from something that is characteristic to human nature because of the fall. We must run from sin. Let's look at what the psalmist comes out with. You know, it's like if you ever watched a horse race, the gates open and these huge animals just, right, they take off. Well, what does the psalmist take off with? I have done what is just and right. The gate opens for this section and he just bursts forth with a statement of what I call a life of integrity. I have striven to walk with God. Now, make sure you hear him rightly. This is a statement of humble confidence. This isn't a statement of braggadocious arrogance. I know, I'm pretty special. I've arrived. You all can be like me one day if you try hard. No, no, this is a statement of, I have fought to walk 
with God. Now, as we've gone through Psalm 119, I've, I've continually mentioned the fact that we don't know exactly who wrote this. Most people think it was David. It could have been David. It could have been Daniel. If you, if you think of these two men in scripture, let me just mention to you what these two men say about sin. Let me direct your attention to Daniel chapter 9. Because in, da- in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prays. And Daniel's prayer is one of confession. Then I turned my face to the Lord in verse 3, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who keep him or love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And till verse 19 and 20, we see the man of God who potentially wrote this psalm saying, we have sinned. But back in in the book of Psalms to Psalm 32, if David penned this text, listen to what David says about sin. In Psalm 32, verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What we are, so I want to direct your attention to Daniel 9 and Psalm 32 because whoever wrote Psalm 119 was not perfect. That's the point. They knew they weren't perfect men, but they strove to walk with God. So when we talk about a life of of integrity, we're not talking about a life of perfection. We're talking about a life of broken humility before God. A life that when you fail, you run to him. You confess your sin. You forsake it. You see, I think a lot of Christians live as though, okay, I've been forgiven. Now I'm going to live kind of like I'm ignorant of my own sin, right? Right? So we just, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. And I made a mistake as opposed to run to God, confess, forsake your sin. You see, a person of integrity is not a person who never fails. It's a person who knows they're a sinner and runs to God for grace. That's how David could be called a man after God's own heart. If you know anything about David, he had some major pitfalls, to say the least. Pitfalls so great, we might kick him out of the church. And yet he was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he was a man of repentance and faith. A man who kept coming back and saying, God, I need you. Oh, forgive me. Have mercy on me. And so even with the struggles that we have with sin, as we fight to walk with God, we can hopefully, by his grace, say, I have done what is just and right. Is this not what he has been striving for since verse one? Blessed is the man whose way is blameless. According to the New Testament, the idea of blamelessness was a person that had no handles, nothing you could grab onto and say, aha, look at you. (laughs) You're you're a sinner in this way, in this way, in this way, because you have whole areas of your life that are left unrepentant, undealt with. And the psalmist says, no, 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 no. I want to walk in justice and righteousness. I want to know what's right and do what's right. That's justice and righteousness. I want to know it and I want to do it. 
And brothers and sisters, shouldn't this be what every servant of God longs to say? Shouldn't that be our hearts if you're in Christ this morning? Oh, I've got to walk with you. No, I'm not touting some perfectionism. I'm simply saying, by your grace, by the power of your word, I strive to walk with you. And the sad truth is, most of us are content with living casual Christian lives. We don't actually believe that the enemy of God and the enemy of our souls prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may destroy. And so we just kind of live like, eh, I'll be okay. I mean, I go to church. I've been forgiven. I'm trusting Jesus. I'll be fine. Reality is we're not fine. I think I've mentioned before, growing up in Chicago, people would often say things like, I can't help it. I'm Irish. It was a big Irish city. The joke in Chicago is they can dye the river green for St. Patty's Day, but they can't dye it blue the rest of the year. All right? There's Irish everything everywhere. Does your ethnicity or background really determine your sin struggle? <laughs> but we like to say things like that, don't we? Oh, I'm, I'm from so-and-so, therefore I'm okay with your, a certain measure of sinfulness in this area. You know, our personalities are just as tainted by our sin as everything else in life. It may be the way that you've been for 30, 40, 50 years. God still calls it sin, and he still says die to it. And so here what we see is that as Christians, we can't live casual lives. Paul used words like running, that I might not be disqualified. I box as one who does not just beat the air. But I don't think we really fight, and we don't really die. We just kind of live lives that are happy. And as long as nothing big happens, we're okay. But brothers and sisters, if we are going to be people who are marked as servants of God, we must live lives of integrity. And that means you must fight sin. You must fight sin. One of the patterns of my life that I strive after and sometimes fail in, but I strive for is waking up on a regular basis and reminding myself, I need God's grace today. If I don't have your grace to fight sin, I will go after my sin. If I don't run to you to die to sin, it's going to kill me, right? It's going to come after me today. And as the enemy of God is called an angel of light, he doesn't come to you with little red horns, right? He comes to you thinking that's really okay. It's no big deal. God doesn't care. Well, God always cares about sin. And sin is anything we say, think, or do that has a disregard for this book, right? And so it's always coming after us. And here the psalmist says, oh God, I, I long to do what is, to know what is right and do what is right. May we be Christians that don't just talk about forgiveness, but talk about holiness, right? That don't just talk about, we've been redeemed, but we talk about the sin we're dying to. You see, we love to talk about what God's done for us. And that's beautiful, isn't it? We should. But shouldn't we be just as committed to talking about how we long to live for him? That's what we're called to do as the church, to spur one another on to love and good works, that we might live for God. So might we be people that run from sin, right from the giddy-up, as some might say, right from the get-go, live a life of integrity. 
The second thing we see under running from sin is actually down in verse 26. Here we see a zeal for holy judgment. Look at verse 126 in your Bible. He says, it is time for the Lord to act for your law has been broken. Every time this word act is connected to Yahweh, the name Lord in the Old Testament, it's referring to judgment. God acts and it's judgment. That's what he does. When he acts, he's going to bring judgment on sin. And here the psalmist says, it's time, Lord, it's time, God, for you to act. Why? Because your law has been violated. A total disregard for the law of God. Interesting, I just mentioned personal integrity. But here we see that personal and corporate, meaning broad, all of us, holiness or integrity, they go hand in hand. If you really live a life zealous to walk with God, guess what? You will be broken by those who don't. You, you can't have one without the other. It's impossible. So if you really have a zeal to live for God, every evidence that he's not being lived for will break your heart. And it should break your heart. And why it doesn't break our hearts is one of two reasons. Either you're not walking with God or you're callous to things you shouldn't be callous to. That's it. So if you're not broken by the sin around you with a holy zeal, it's, it's only because you're either not walking with God or you're callous to what's in your society, right? I mentioned uh, last Sunday, I talked about my time in Kenya. There are sins in our society that we're callous to, okay? And in Kenya, those sins didn't exist, um, at least in the same way. However, in Kenya, one of their sins is the, uh, the act of polygamy. I was talking to the men on Tuesday night that a lot of families, a lot of, a lot of homes, pretty much every, every extended family, you have aunts and uncles or somebody who's in a polygamous marriage, Three, four, five, six women with, with a single, with one man. Now to you and I, we're like, oh, that's terrible, right? That just disgusts us because we don't have that here. We have other sins that should bother us, right? That don't. So there might be a sin of one culture that we're sensitive to because it's not familiar to us, but there are plenty of sins that are familiar to us that we should be sensitive to. And I don't need to list them because you know them quite well. And so here what we see, the psalmist is saying, God, I am so committed to you that when, when your law is violated, when people have a disregard for God, it breaks my heart and it must be judged. And brothers and sisters, we cannot minimize the judgment of God on sin throughout the scriptures. We just can't. We live in a day and age that that is an ignored message of scripture, right? Just don't talk about it. Don't deal with it. Just ignore so much of scripture. And I just want to remind you this morning of a few biblical examples of the judgment of God in drastic ways. You know, we teach children about Noah and the flood. You know, this little cute little boat floating on water and animals lining up two by two to go into it. Do you know the, 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 the ark represents millions of people dying under the judgment of God? That's what it represents. Millions of men, women, children, animals, everything dying because of human sin. And God is grieved he made humanity. It's not just a cute story about a boat floating on water, is it? 
It's a story of the judgment of God on humanity because they were willing to neglect him and run from him. The ark is actually pointing us to the cross that he saves. And all throughout scripture, he's giving us little picture windows and to say, I save people. I save people. Don't forget I save people, even through judgment. That's, that's Noah, right? We read stories like Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. And we make songs about Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. When an entire city is wiped out, annihilated. We're talking about a massive ancient civilization. The act of God crushing the walls, killing everybody. And we just, oh, the people of God marched around the city seven days, and then they marched around it seven times in one day. What a cool story. The judgment of God on people who had neglected him, gone after idols, and he said, I've had enough. And I'm judging you for your sin. We look at the story of Nineveh with Jonah. God said, go tell them I'm going to destroy them. And you know what? He redeemed them. But two generations later, he destroyed them. Because they repented and then the next generation ran. And you're talking a city of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people wiped off the face of the earth because of their sin. And we just study ancient ruins today, right? Folks, this is, this is not a popular message. And you're like, wow, come to Elk Grove Bible Church, be discouraged. You know, come hear how God wipes people off the face of the earth. Because I need to ask you a question, and we, we can't get away from this. Why? Why do we have so many cases of the judgment of God in Scripture? Is it just that God is vindictive? Is it just that he is you know, angry, and every so often he's like Zeus, just lashes out with thunderbolts and displays uncontrolled wrath? Not at all. There's two, there's two reasons why we see judgment in Scripture. The first one is the character of God that we will never forget the character of God. There's none like him. See, we make God like us. Oh, that's so sad that God would do that. What's actually sad is that humanity would disregard God. That's what's sad. That's what breaks your heart is that humanity doesn't care and they run from this God. But do you know what the second reason we see judgment all through scripture is? It's like a flashing neon sign that's screaming, look to the cross. There's coming a day when God will kill God. There's coming a day when humanity won't be judged for their sin if they turn to Jesus. And see, we are okay with the death of Jesus. We're not okay with the judgment of God in other ways. But we actually should be horrified at the death of God. That should be the ultimate act of judgment in scripture that causes you to weep and say, he didn't deserve it. Every other human being that suffered and died under the judgment of God deserved it. Not him. Not him. But he took it that we might go free. And here the psalmist says, God act. Your law has been broken. And God acts all through scripture, all the way to the crushing of Christ. Because the law of God has been broken. And as redeemed sinners here this morning, I hope your heart says, amen. Amen that God judges sin and amen that he did it to the son of God in my place. Because if he didn't do it to the son of God in your place, then you and I have to be like the people in the day of Noah. We have to be like the people of Jericho.
We have to be like Nineveh and every other people that were judged for their sin. So praise God for grace, amen? That he said, oh God, your law has been broken. Act, do something. And God did act. Well, look at where he continues to go as he talks about running from sin. He's talked about integrity. He's talked about judgment. Now he's going to talk about when you run from sin, when you truly run from sin, you have an affection for the word of God. Psalm 119, 127. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. All genuine running from sin begins here. Loving the word of God. Yesterday with the, at the women's luncheon, if you missed it, um, I, I hope you don't miss the next one. It was, I heard very, very good things. The speaker, though, made some comments that my wife shared with me about commitment to the scriptures. That she, at 12 years old, made a commitment. God, I want to I spend time with you every day. And she said it was the, the most life-changing commitment I could have ever made to daily be in the word of God. Not just to check off a box, but to daily know God. When we are committed to being in this book, we begin to run from sin. If you close this book and are not in it, you begin to think sin is actually okay. You actually begin to call sin righteousness. It's actually good. Oh yeah, that's good and right. Just like today where people would say, oh yeah, if you're, if you're in a relationship with somebody who didn't treat you right, leave them. It's okay. That's good advice according to the world standards. Or if, if, you, need to, if you are angry because somebody mistreated you, they deserved it. Right? That's good according to worldly standards. And you open this book and you begin to say, oh, I think God has a different way of dealing with life. I think his ways are maybe better than my ways. So affection for the word is where we fuel this running from sin because apart from this book, you cannot hate sin. You can't. Apart from this book, you will buy into the lies of culture and think that a little bit of sin is okay. But Jesus is clear, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? You can't have just a little bit and be okay in the rest of it. So we need to be people who have a sincere affection for this book. So I have a question. What does it look like? to have affection for the word of God. I have three simple things. One, value is placed on it. Whatever you love is valuable to you, right? For some of you, it's important that baseball season just started. And for others, you are clueless because you could care less, right? Whatever you place value on, whatever it got with your affections, it's where value goes. So when we have affections for the scriptures, we value them. This isn't a take it or leave it book. It's not like, eh, if I don't have time with my savior, big deal. I long to be with my God in this book. Value is placed on it. Secondly, when you have affections for this book, faith is placed in it. You actually believe it. Do you know that faith is actually believing when it doesn't make sense? Are you tracking here? See, we think faith is like, okay, yeah, God, you proved this to me, so I'll believe it. Faith is reading it and saying, that's crazy, and I'm doing it God's way. That's faith. Faith is not, okay, I can see it right here, I'll take that step. Hebrews says faith is what? The evidence of, right, things hoped for, right? Things unseen. Say, God, I don't, I don't know if that's going to work. But you said it. 
I'm going to believe you. That's faith. Faith is simply saying, I value it and I believe it. So whether it's relationships or, or parenting or work or something that you think is irreconcilable and you say, okay, God, you say this. Everything in the world screaming the other direction. Faith says this. Okay, I'm going with God. I'm siding with God. So value, faith, and then we see, I think, the obvious one, commitment is given to it. So the faith, right, I'm, I believe it and I act upon it. That's faith. So we have affection for the word, value, faith, and commitment. Not because it makes sense, but because God is right. And regardless of your experience or what you think, side with God. God, you're right. And so the psalmist can say, I love your commandments. And he says, I love them more than the finest luxuries the world can afford. That's what fine gold is. The finest luxuries known to mankind, you're better infinitely better. But look at where he goes. I love your commandments above fine gold. And this next statement is really the point. I have carefully considered and come to the conclusion that your precepts are right. That's what that is. I've really considered it. I've wrestled with the truth and your precepts are right and I hate every false way. What a profound statement. So this affection brings him to the conclusion that God is right, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with God. You see, affection dictates our behavior. And the greater the affection, the more conformed the behavior, right? So depending on the extremeness of your fandom for a particular team dictates how crazy you are, right? So it dictates, do you just watch the games? Do you buy the shirt? Do you go to the games? Do you get the tattoo across your back? Like how significant are, how serious are you in this pursuit, in this affection? You see here the psalmist says, it is so life consuming that I strive to conform everything to it. I consider your precepts to be right. And I hate every false way. So not only does affection move us in a positive direction, it moves us in a negative direction. And so here we must ask the question, are we willing to side with God in a world that doesn't? Can I share with you something sobering that's happening in our state this weekend? You may not be aware. A bill passed Friday and is going to the assembly floor this next week that would make it illegal to counsel anybody to obey scriptures and forsake same-sex attraction. Illegal to sell books, illegal to speak on it, and we will be told as a church, you cannot do this. And it doesn't matter that we love people, that we're saying, hey, we are loving and gracious. We're simply saying that we believe that same sex attraction needs to be dealt with in a biblical manner, and the society we're in is going to say, you can't do that. And that's happening right now in our state. And so we are going to be confronted with. Do we side with God? Do we, do we hold to God's truth? So brothers and sisters, we might agree on that issue, but what about other issues? Maybe issues that are in your life and issues that are in my life. See, we can look at the state assembly and say, oh, how dare them? How about your heart? When God says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but that which is good for the building up of others. And you love to gossip. 
okay, that just got personal. It's easy to amen the state assembly people, but how about our lives, right? Jesus said, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. Don't touch me there, because that's what I want to do. Don't put your finger on that one, pastor. Let me do what I want to do. Sexual sin is just normal, especially in the mind. Are we going to agree with God? Because God gets really close and personal. And he says, he, he concludes, I consider all of your precepts to be right and good. And I hate everything false. Everything contrary to this book, I despise it. Brothers and sisters, we are not free to pick and choose the sins that we want to embrace. He says, I consider all of them and I side with God on all of them. And that's why he starts as he finishes. We just bookended the psalm, this section of the psalm. I've done what's right and just. How can he do that? Because he agrees with God on what sin is. He agrees with God on what God says is evil. So I side with God every time. Do you see it in this psalm that he runs from sin? He runs from those who disregard his God. You cannot be marked as a servant of God and live a life of sin. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. We know that, but we really try to do both, don't we? And you can't. That message was clear with Jesus, and it's clear a thousand years before Jesus in Psalm 119. You can't do both. So a mark of a servant of God is one who runs from sin. But the second mark is profound because you see, we like to say running from sin and we preach on sin and we like to use words like legalism and moralist and goody two shoe and Bible thumper, all these other words when you talk about sin. But guess what the scriptures do? They're beautiful. They combine running from sin and running to grace all in the same section. So we're going to talk about grace, but guess what? If you're going to talk about grace, you've got to deal with sin too. And we like to put, put the two against each other, like they're somehow contradictory. You see, the reality of sin demands the reality of grace. And you can't address grace unless you address, unless you can't, unless you address sin. And so the psalmist is going to push us to run to grace. So mark number one is run from sin. Mark number two is run to grace. Look at verse 124. We're going to jump in right there on this point. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love or your mercy. How does he plead his case before God? According to who you are, deal goodly with me. Deal kindly with me. I am fighting to live for you with all my strength but deal with me according to your character. The gracious character of God is the foundation for everything. In the Hebrew language, there are two words for the word mercy. This is the word for mercy that, is, that has a covenantal connection to it, meaning the faithfulness of God. That God, you are faithful to me. This word is translated mercy. It's translated as steadfast love. It's translated as simply love or goodness. But we see him saying, here is the character of God. You are a God abounding in, that's this word, mercy, steadfast love. This is the unique message of the Christian faith. 
If you read my, my blog when I was traveling a few weeks ago, I, I sat next to a young woman on a plane from Istanbul to Nairobi. Um, she was a delightful young lady. We talked for hours and hours. Um, she uh, believed in the Islamic faith system. And so we had a very interesting conversation about her faith and about my faith. And it was a joy to talk to her about Jesus. Um, in her system of faith, there's no real category for mercy. They would say that Allah is m- merciful but they really don't know what that looks like. So Kozwar, at the end of the conversation, I just said, so you've done all these things. I mean, you wear the hijab and you do your holy days and you do the prayers and you do all of it. When you stand before Allah, what is he going to say? She didn't have an answer. I hope I've been good enough. That's the message of every world religion. Every single one. I hope I've done enough. That's it. I don't care what religion you pick on, what religion you talk about. The message of all religion is do more and do it better. And maybe when you die, God will be gracious to you. That's not the message of the scriptures. The Christian faith is radically different. He doesn't say, God, deal with me according to who I am. I hope I've done enough today. He says, God, deal with me according to who you are. Because even on my best day, I need you. Even when I've done everything I know in my power to walk with God, I need his grace. And so he goes to him and he says, God, based on the character of my God, I need you. But I'm going to present a tension for you this morning because we need to live in this tension. Okay, take your Bible and go to Psalm 18. Psalm 18, back a few pages. Okay, remember everything I just told you. Everything we just talked about. And go back to Psalm 18. If David is the psalmist of Psalm 119, this is the same author. Psalm 18, beginning in verse 20. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And so the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness with according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Is there a tension there yet? (laughs) You see, we don't like the tension. And so what good historic Protestants do is we just say grace alone it's all grace is that true amen it's true it is by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus alone and we will die on that mountain but does God bless those in his grace who walk with him amen so here we see the psalmist going back and forth. But see, one, I believe, is positional. Because that's the message of Scripture. I am positionally right with God, meaning a child of God. My standing is set firm on what bounds, on what, on what grounds? The gospel. I've come to God in faith, the character of God, his mercy. And so I am his and his alone. And therefore, I am blessed in the beloved, all the blessings of, first, of Ephesians chapter 1 are mine. They are. 
And it is my duty and my joy and my privilege to walk with God. And as you walk with God, there are manifold blessings to walking with him. That's where he said, blessed is the, way, blessed is the man who is blameless, who walks in the law of the Lord. You see, I think there's a lot of people that claim to be Christians, and they very well may be. They know the blessings of their position. But see, what they're desiring is all the blessings of walking with God, and they're unwilling to do it. And they wonder, why is my life a mess? I thought I was going to come to Jesus. He was going to fix all my problems. Well, he saved you. He forgave you. But if you keep living like a reprobate, you will have the consequences of a reprobate. And your life is going to be really tough because you refuse to walk with God. You see, in God's economy, not only is there blessings in forgiveness called the gospel, there's blessings in walking with God. It's called sanctification. And you draw near to God and he draws near to you. And there's goodness there. And church, um, we must embrace both. So this morning, I was honestly tempted to not go to Psalm 18. But then you might go there in your Bible time and, and think, huh, the Bible contradicts itself. It's not contradicting itself. We've got to have see both. And he, even in this Psalm, in Psalm 119, 121, he says, I've done what's just and right. I've fought to walk with you. God, would you be good to me based on who you are? Because <laughs> I need you. I desperately need you. So brothers and sisters, we must run to God's grace and we must plead for grace because of the character of God and we plead for grace not because of personal, personal performance and yet we strive to walk with our God. Is that clear? Because it's got to be clear and we can't have one without the other. If all you get is from this morning, I've got to walk with God, you will be a legalist. You will be a moralist. You'll be a religious do-gooder apart from Jesus. And if all you get is the character of God, I'm forgiven, you'll go into license thinking that I can do whatever I want and God's forgiven me. Both aren't in this book. But every religion of the world seems to fail on one or the other. We want to just say, no, both are clear. There's two, there's two train tracks, right, for the train to ride on. There's got to be two. If, if one's gone, the train falls over. There's two tracks, and we got to hold on to both of them. So we need to keep going. We plead for grace because of the character of God. Look at what he says, though. We're going to go back to the beginning, verse 121 to 123. Here we see he goes to God for grace, but now this grace is a delivering grace. He pleads for delivering grace. I have done what is just and right, but what does he say next? Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Interesting, 121b and 122b, the second pieces of those, deliverance from suffering is an act of God's grace. Last week we spent a long time on this and so I won't this morning. But doesn't suffering cause us to depend on the Lord? It pushes us to dependence. When everything in life is good, according to us, we're not dependent. When everything is not good, we're dependent. Or at least we should be. And God likes us dependent. So he keeps us in a spot of brokenness, so we'll be dependent. And all we want to do is be unbroken so that we cannot be dependent. Do you see the conundrum? He's like, Lord, 
I'm, I'm broken. Life is not going well. Don't leave me to my oppressors. It's interesting that the beginning of verse 122 is sandwiched between two statements. Did you see it? Don't leave me to my oppressors. Let not the insolent oppress me. What's in the middle? Give your servant a pledge of good. It's like a sandwich and both, both pieces of bread are rotten, right? It's like they're both bad. But be good to me. Be good to me. When the circumstances ain't changing, be good to me, God. See, that's where I think we must come back to this truth. Do you actually believe that God is good to you when, when life doesn't look good? When things aren't going your way? Because I think far too often we, we say, I tried God and he failed me. That's what we end up doing. Oh God, why? I've been faithful to you for decades and you failed me. But here we see the psalmist saying, hey, there's oppression on both sides. Give a pledge of good. This word pledge is really interesting and it's a covenantal term. A statement of binding yourself to someone else. He says, bind yourself to me with good. Isn't that that really cool? God, according to your character that's full of mercy and abounding in steadfast love, be good to me, even when the circumstances of life aren't. And this is what we see in scripture in verse 123. He says, my eyes long for your salvation. Notice that's a present, a present tense statement. So he's still suffering. My eyes currently long for salvation and the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Now, I don't know the promises that the psalmist had in mind, There are some, though, that we might need to remember this morning. Promises like James chapter 1. I'm going to flip over there quickly. James chapter 1, verse 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And if anybody lacks wisdom in the context of trials, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. It will be given to him. He says, God, I long for your salvation and the fulfillment of your righteous promise. So guess what we must know? The promises of God. We must, again, go back to affection for this book, know this book so well that when oppression comes, (laughs) I know where to go. I know where to go. It's right here. The promises of God. And folks, you're not going to find James 1, 2 to 5 in secular wisdom. (laughs) Count it all joy, my brothers? (laughs) Good one. Yeah, that's not how it works. Testing of your faith produces steadfastness. No, it produces depression. You ain't getting out of that one. And he says, count it all joy. When you stay steadfast through trial, it's going to produce Jesus in you. You're going to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. No, by the way, that God who brought that trial into your life is the God who gives wisdom through the trial. So run to him. And so here we see the psalmist crying out for salvation, crying out for deliverance according to the promises of his God. Or maybe if you take your, take your Bible and turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, another assurance through trial, assurance that we can hold on to. Listen to these words. Excuse me. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the psalmist says, deliver me according to your promises. And so we today say there's promises in the scriptures. And we run to them and we say, God, in my oppression, be gracious to me. Be be a God of deliverance to me. I long for your salvation. That is a request of mercy. Do you see that? That's grace. I long for you to deliver me. Do your work because you're a God full of mercy. And so we see him running to God for grace based on his character. He runs to God for grace to be delivered. And finally we see he runs to God to grace for instruction. Oh, this is just... You see the themes of Psalm 119 all over. They're like, they're like weeds that sprout up in a garden. You just can't get them all. That's how this is here. It's like all over the psalm. These themes of, of the scriptures and delighting in the word and being taught the book are all over. And here we see them again. Let's just dissect them together. Verse 124. We've talked about the first part. Teach, deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. And teach me your statutes. Teach me your statutes. Verse 125, I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. I just read true wisdom is a gift of God. It's from God. Wisdom doesn't come through social media, folks. Wisdom doesn't come through watching the news. It doesn't come from a group therapy session. Wisdom comes from God and God alone, chiefly through this book. So we need this book to know the wisdom that God alone gives. You know, I love the connections in scriptures. Uh, Second Chronicles, if you have have your scriptures, go back there. Second Chronicles, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. Story that most of us have probably heard at some point in our life. Second Chronicles chapter one. We have a man by the name of Solomon. And he's given an opportunity that is probably the closest thing to a genie in the bottle you find in Scripture. I mean, let's just be honest. God appearing? You get one of three wishes. (laughs) This is like the best day of your life. You can have money, you can have power, or wisdom. (laughs) Most of us, Number three, off the table, instantly. Because we'll, we, would, we would use some excuse like this. If I have money, I can pay for education. <laughs> Boom, right there, I'm good. We'd have all these excuses for why we could go with option one or two. But what is that happens here? In the night, God appeared to Solomon, verse seven, and said to him, ask what I shall give to you. And Solomon said to God, you have shown great and steadfast love to David my father and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled for you, have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and to, to come in before this people for who can govern this people of yours which is so great. So this is a little different than our context, but not really, because James says, if anybody lacks wisdom, where do you go? You go to God, and what does God promise to give you? Wisdom. What did God give Solomon? Wisdom. So he says, you want wisdom? I'm gonna give it to you. 
It's going to be through the word of God. True wisdom is a gift of God. It always has been a gift of God. But look at the progression of these words in verse 124 and 125. He says in 124, teach me. In verse 125, he says, give me understanding. And he says, that I may know your testimonies. We have the idea of teaching. I need to be instructed, God. I need a teacher. I can't do it on my own. Teach me. But it's not just enough to have intellectual knowledge. I want to understand it. I want it to go past the periphery. We've all passed classes because we cram steadied. Right? Doing your flashcards, you run in, take the test, and you have forgot everything. Doesn't matter, you pass the class. And nobody cares because it was high school biology. Sorry if you teach biology. Um, That was one of those classes I definitely crammed for. But you need to understand it. He says, teach me. Help me to understand why and what, because I want to walk with you. And then he says that I would know. And the word know in scripture is consistently experiential. It wasn't just a mental assent, mental affirmation. It was a knowing that led to immediate experience. Like you know fire burns you so you don't grab fire. It's knowing connected to action. Here he says, teach, understand, know. Like wisdom in scripture, a wise man sees evil and hides himself. You you, you teach, you understand, you know, and then it immediately affects your actions. You run from sin. And we could apply that to scripture after scripture. And the beauty of this is John 14, 26, Jesus said, I'm going to leave and I'm going to send a teacher. There will be one who will guide you into all truth. And so you might feel helpless this morning. I just can't do it. I hear what you're saying, Pastor Justin, but I can't do it. And I would say, you're right. You can't. Jesus left you the spirit of God. So you have the spirit who wrote the scriptures because holy men of God were moved along by the spirit of God to write this book so that God can speak to you today. That spirit that wrote the book is in you if you're a child of God. And so you go to him and you say, okay, this is your truth. Teach me. I don't know the answers right now. I I don't know what to do next but I'm going to run to you by your grace to the scriptures and know that you'll meet me. And so we run to God for instruction by his grace. Brothers and sisters, do you see it this morning, the two marks of a servant? We run from sin and we run to grace. I started off with asking the question about authenticity. We have a lot of unauthentic faith today. Toss the word around. We don't even know what it means. And the scriptures clearly define for us what an authentic child of God looks like. It's a a servant of God. It's a humble position, isn't it? We don't like the term servant in America, but we're servants of God. And he says, you're a servant of God and you will be marked by running from sin and running to his grace. May we be such a church, Amen? amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for challenging us. We need you, Lord. Father, I pray that throughout this week, the scriptures would be pressed deeply on the minds of your people. That this would not be something we just sit through, but be something that we soak in and we think about and and meditate on, knowing that you alone are the one we need. So may we live for you 
And may we run to your grace because Lord, we desperately need you. And in Christ's name, amen.